0: Welcome to episode 26 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up.
1: You undergo a mild general anesthetic, so you're unconscious. We provide a very small and short burst of an electrical impulse. It's just enough to trigger enough neurons in the brain to then generate a generalized seizure.
0: Hi, I'm Ruan, and today we're speaking with Dr. Graham Wong, who is a consultant psychiatrist and the medical director of the Epworth Hospital Mental Health Unit. He's also the director of the Electroconvulsive Therapy Service, which is going to be the specific area that we are going to dive into today. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory based in Australia and live as of this episode. TalkLink lists mental health practitioners like psychologists, counsellors, and psychotherapists. Users can search for a mental health practitioner for free by applying filters for things that are important to them, like a particular focus area or experience in a specific treatment type. Users can even see a short video of the therapist to decide whether this is someone that they would like to connect with. Find your mental health professional at talklink.com.au today. Okay, let's dive in. I'm actually really excited to have this conversation with you, uh, Dr. Wong. It's not every day that we get to speak to someone who, uh, I guess, electrocutes people for a living.
1: <laughs> well, not
0: quite as bad as that. <laughs> Why don't we launch in with that? Tell us what you do. Okay. Well,
1: um, I'm a consultant psychiatrist um, and I'm also the medical director of our mental health unit um, here at the Epworth Clinic, which um, is a, a non profit not-for-profit, a uh, private uh, mental health service based in Camberwell in Victoria and uh, I'm also the director of the electroconvulsive therapy service which is ECT for short and so ECT is a uh, powerful and significant treatment for uh, severe major depressive disorder which is used in um, all first world countries not all third world countries It's sort of cloaked in um, mystery and carries a lot of stigma amongst both the general community and also the medical community, might I say. Um, But it is a legitimate treatment uh, for severe major depression, but it's certainly not for everybody. Um, And it's certainly not first line treatment. It's a highly specialized treatment for those who are very, very unwell, who've either not responded to conventional treatments or um, are so unwell that they require uh, treatment as soon as possible in an emergency kind of situation.
0: I mean, it does sound pretty full on. Uh, The image I have in my mind is probably completely off. So um, can you maybe help our listeners and myself with the right image? What does it actually look like and what does it involve?
1: Well, the image that you have is probably the same image that everybody else has in their mind. Um, And that's more often than not, either something that comes from the movie One Flew Over the Cooker's Nest, or unfortunately, the generally terrible way uh, it's depicted in um, most of the media, um, in terms of um, TV series or movies. I think I did look at a study uh, relatively recently, which suggested that ECT was depicted in a particular inaccurate way in over 80% of media portrayals and um the way which it's depicted is a form of punishment um it's done with um ancient sort of uh, delivery methods um without a general anesthetic etc etc and so that's nothing like the way we in which we would deliver uh you know a bona fide treatment but that's the way it's seen and i guess in some ways uh at some stage in its history, it may have been delivered in a in a very um, let's say backwards kind of manner. But um, you know the questions you're asking me, I've often addressed in talks uh, at different times over the years, and I have a series of slides that I normally put up, and uh, it's 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 easy then to show images of you know one floor of the cuckoo's nest and those sorts of things, and I sometimes show snippets from the actual movie. Um, and then I can show some images of how it is actually delivered in modern-day uh, medicine, and it's very different. And so when you um, show pictures of ECT back from, say, in the 1950s or 60s, and it's in black and white and it looks pretty ancient and backwards, Yeah. don't forget when you show surgery from the same time yes. frame, it looks <laughs> backwards and, and, yeah. and pretty ancient. Um, and so, of course, ECTs move forward with modern technology, just like anything else has.
0: So who who would be the right candidate for ECT? Can you describe that typical sort of person?
1: Yeah, look, it's it's not what people might even imagine with, uh, with major depressive disorder. You know, major depressive disorder can be something like um, headache, for instance. Um, and so lots of people can have distress and have a headache. And for that, you don't necessarily need treatment. Of course, there's normal headaches that come and go and that don't need anything specific. There's migraines that might be more severe forms of a specific kind of headache. And that maybe is what major depressive disorder is. So it's actually a a medical mental health condition that requires specific treatment. And there's all sorts of grades of depressive disorder. So uh, certain mild, um, but major depressive disorder can be treated with psychological therapy so seeing a psychologist or seeing your GP um, and not require let's say biological treatments like medications and then there might be the more moderate to severe major depressive disorders that um, might also then uh, require medication to um, uh, to recover from and then at the other end of the spectrum when someone's really unwell and so you know someone can have a headache but they might have you know a brain aneurysm or a tumour or something like that and uh, That's not going to benefit from migraine therapy or a Panadol. It's going to need a whole lot of other set of treatments. And similarly, major depressive disorder can be uh, severe, unresponsive to standard treatments, can be life-threatening either through suicidality or um, we don't see it so much in in modern society nowadays, but um, at a different time, major depressive disorder could be so bad that someone was catatonic and so not talking, not eating, not um, not moving almost. And that's the time when ECT is almost miraculous and works where no other treatment works. And so we, we generally don't see that in modern society nowadays, but we certainly see some of that in third world countries. And so just like we might deliver you know, new surgical techniques for cataracts you know, to third world countries, uh, an ECT machine and an ECT service can be almost miraculous um, to, for some of those really severe mental health conditions um, in third world countries as well. And so, in modern society, and so I'm talking about generally, you know, Western society and, and um, um, more first world countries, so people with severe major depressive disorder. Um, those who are very unwell, uh, suicidal, extraordinarily distressed um, and who need treatment and a response to treatment um, sooner rather than later. And ECT then has its specific place because it is more effective and antidepressant than medications might be. So it works for a lot more patients than let's say medications might and it's a lot it's the response is a lot faster. So medications may take up to two or three weeks or more to take effect, whereas ECT can have an effect sometimes almost immediately, but well within uh, the first uh, week or two of treatment. So it can be used and has a specific place in more urgent, uh, severe situations, um, but also in patients who, um, let's say for often several years, have not responded to um, psychotherapy and medication regimens and a combination thereof, who have ongoing severe suicide risk continually um, and and then perhaps chronically uh, distressed as well. Um, And they're looking for some kind of uh, treatment that's going to be effective. Even then, depression and the distress may not be entirely major depressive related There's other issues, other conditions, um, other psychological conditions, personality issues, trauma-based issues, those sorts of things, for perhaps which no amount of medication or ECT is going to make a good difference to. But if there is a major depressive disorder that's significantly present or interfering with a person's progress with um, treatment for other conditions and has not responded to Uh, medications or other things, then yes, that's when ECT might um, be indicated and considered.
0: So it's a little bit surprising to me. I guess I can wrap my head around the extreme major depressive episodes intervention where, you know, anything is better than what you have right now. But the bit that's a little bit surprising to me is that there is sort of the edge of just a serious depression where it could be an appropriate uh, tool to help that person. Did I understand that correctly?
1: Where you saying it could be an inappropriate tool?
0: It could be an appropriate tool. It could be an option for someone who just has, you know they're not necessarily catatonic, but they've just got a really, really serious deep depression.
1: Yeah, yeah look, um as I said, it's not an indication for everybody, um, but if a person and their family and loved ones have seen uh, have experienced treatment, refractory, um, depression, it's its torture, um, and to have to persist with that and treatments continually fail, then at least trialling ECT is warranted. I can't suggest that it's necessarily going to be miraculously effective, but it may be, it can be miraculously effective. That is unusual when we're dealing with other comorbidities and other issues that are going on for someone, but it can certainly be of assistance, as I said, when the major depressive disorder component of a person's distress hasn't responded well enough to other treatments. And so it may have its place, but it is a serious treatment for a serious condition. And certainly it's not for everybody.
0: So if someone is listening and they feel like they may have had an extended period of depression, and they feel like therapy and conventional talk counseling is not working for them, and they are on antidepressants, it's just not really giving them the results they want. How do you start that dialogue with a professional to see if ECT is an appropriate option? Do you just Google it? How do you find someone?
1: Well, normally by the time a person's coming to ECT, they would already be, let's say, unwell enough um, um, for long enough to already be under the care of a a psychiatrist, hopefully. Um, And so... Uh, I guess, generally speaking, one would think that they've been under the care of a general practitioner um, who's tried various medications for a little while. They may or may not have seen a psychologist. But if you're not under the care of a psychiatrist already, then the first person to have a conversation with would be your GP, your general practitioner. Um, and that wouldn't—I wouldn't suggest that would be a conversation about ECT per se. But that would be more a conversation as to, well, what's happening with my depression? Do I need more specialist care? And then to to go into that specialist care, and of course, then um, seeing if more high-powered specialist psychiatric care doesn't help make a change to things and then again within within psychiatry consideration of ECT is another subspecialty in and of itself and so lots of doctors of course know about ECT it is a prerequisite of general medical student um, teaching and part of their curriculum but many medicos are not so uh, attuned to what ECT is and they also think you know it's a pretty um uh, backwards kind of treatment um, and even similarly uh, psychiatrists who aren't necessarily specialised in ECT will know of its use and will then perhaps seek a, uh, uh, another opinion from an ECT specialist psychiatrist who might then be able to um, help with the patient and their family uh, decide whether something like ECT is appropriate
0: or not. So if someone's had that conversation and they've reached that point or someone might know someone who's going through that a friend or a loved one What should they expect? What's going to happen to them? What happens when they go to you on the day of the treatment? What's the process?
1: Okay, so I guess ECT is delivered like any other medical procedure. Um, There's a whole lot of um, policy and procedure and governance as to how it's delivered. And so in some respects, it's it's like having a gastroscopy or a colonoscopy, a, a day surgical procedure, for instance. And so we have a specific ECT service, and so that's run by an ECT director, let's say, for our service, myself, um, the ECT doctors, a specialist psychiatrists who deliver ECT, the um, anaesthetists who provide the general anaesthetic, and our ECT coordinator, who normally has a nursing background, and a whole series of specialist um, ECT nurses um, who help with the anesthetic and then the post anesthetic recovery. So that's a whole team of people dedicated ECT service um, that's dedicated to the delivery of ECT. So, and because it is still, you know, seen within the community as something that's, um, a challenge. There's a whole lot of legal issues that, that need to be addressed as well. And so just like any surgical procedure, you need to um, be consented and have the condition and the treatment explained to you. Uh, and so similarly for ECT, you have to go through a pretty rigorous uh, consenting process and um, have the, the everything explained to you. So you sign that form. There are provisions to deliver ECT Uh, involuntarily to to patients who are so unwell, they can't actually make a decision. Now That happens only in certain um, public sectors of of mental health treatment. We can't do that in the the private sector. But essentially, just like any procedure, you might have to fast from midnight for the actual general anaesthetic. You come in, um, you're assessed by the anaesthetist and you undergo a mild general anaesthetic. So you're unconscious, you're not aware of anything that happens. We provide, via the, via the scalp, a very small and short burst of an electrical impulse. And so when you say, you know, uh, uh, in the living of electrocuting people, it's, it's so small that, you know, unlike, you know, when you, when you defibrillate someone with a cardiac arrest and everyone says, you know, staying clear... We don't have to stand clear. We can be touching the patient. We're not going to get an electrical shock or anything like that. There's no major concern from that perspective because the impulse is so small. It's just enough to um, trigger enough neurons in the brain to then generate a generalized seizure. So it's the same sort of phenomenology of an epileptic, uh, an, a, sorry, an epileptic seizure, um, where someone has an abnormality in their brain, and unfortunately, neurons fire off um, in a poorly coordinated fashion, and then it causes a seizure. Um, That happens in a, you know, obviously as a condition in a poorly controlled way, but we can do that in a controlled way, initiate a seizure. The person, as I said, unconscious at the time, and uh, they do have a slight motor seizure, but that's modified by a muscle relaxant that's delivered as part of the anesthetic so a person's not necessarily jerking um grossly on on the bed um, but there is some movement we're monitoring that with an EEG an electroencephalogram and and all sorts of other monitoring uh devices and we can tell when that stops and then that stops spontaneously and then and it lasts for about 30 seconds um or to 30 seconds to 60 seconds Um, and then the person wakes up spontaneously from the general anaesthetic, and then they're going into recovery, just like they might from any other procedure. And then they um, wake up, there's a short period of um, confusion and disorientation that might be there. Um, Then essentially, um, within two hours, uh, for a person who's a little better and not needing to be in hospital, people can actually go home um, within two hours of having had the procedure. And so that's a single ECT And um, ECT doesn't work after a single treatment. Normally we require a course of treatment. And so a person normally receives uh, treatment three times a week um, for on average about 11 to 12 treatments. So it's normally a good three to four weeks on average of regular treatment for which if you're receiving an acute course for, you know, a depressive episode, a person's more often than not Unwell enough to actually be in hospital because of their depressive condition. But as you can see, uh, not necessarily needing to be in hospital for ECT because it's so invasive or, or so difficult. But normally it's because a person's so unwell that they're receiving treatment um, in hosp- from hospital. But people continue with ECT as they're getting better because. Although ECT can work very quickly, it can also stop working quite quickly when you stop the treatment. So we need to spread it out a little bit. And so a person might get it three times a week, then start to get better. And then we start stretching it out to twice a week, and then maybe once a week. And then some people might elect to continue having ECT as their form of treatment that keeps them from uh, keeps them staying well and keeps them from relapsing. And so some people receive ECT once every six weeks as part of their regimen to keep them well. And they come from home uh, to get that maintenance treatment. Um, That's when I said people can come from home, have their treatment, and go home with someone um, within two hours.
0: I have so many questions. Let's start with the easiest one. Would someone need to shave their head to get the electrodes fitted?
1: Not at all. Not at all. So, as I said, it's just like, well, maybe it's less than uh, a, a day procedure where you might have to shave part of your body or something like that. There's no need to do any sort of preparation or or anything like that. And so, the worst that you get is you get some conducting gel placed in, on, in your hair. And so, you just need to have a shower and wash that out. And otherwise, that, you yeah, have okay. gel in your hair where you don't want it for a little while. But from that perspective, no, there's no, there's no, um, changes that you have to go from that perspective
0: and and roughly from being rolled in to okay it's go time you're up next to being rolled out you, you know recover and how long sort of are we talking
1: so the actual intervention procedure itself as i said probably lasts 30 to 60 seconds the actual seizure itself so all the preparation is all the paperwork and the medical evaluation before then having the general anesthetic and then falling asleep for the anesthetic or becoming unconscious then the treatment 30 to 60 seconds and then waking up spontaneously. So the actual procedure itself, um, including all of that probably lasts about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, And so by the time you go under to the time you're waking up and starting to get orientated again, might be about 20 to 30 minutes. And then, as I said, you're potentially going home um, within two hours.
0: you've clearly been doing this for a long time. You've got a whole team of of experts that you manage administering this treatment. What are some of the most incredible stories you've seen or case studies you can think of, of the transformation this could represent to someone?
1: Yeah, well, I must admit, um, you know, it can work almost miraculously for people. Um, It doesn't happen. It doesn't often happen like that, but it can. And, you know, that can be um, not only, I guess, professionally and personally satisfying to see that happen, but for the person themselves and certainly for their family who have um, been either distressed or tormented by their illness and then very frightened um, to see someone um, experience what they're experiencing. And then, of course, to be so frightened of something like ECT being delivered, to see a person not only get better very quickly but actually to come out of it okay. After that first treatment, that's often what I um, really do enjoy seeing both the person themselves and their family that's that sigh of relief to see that a person then they're, they're not always better after that first treatment but often they're saying well I survived it and I'm not zombified you know my memory hasn't been wiped you know all that I'm not drooling from the corner of my mouth all that sort of stuff and they remember everything that they we conversed about everything that we've talked about and the family just breathed that sigh of relief that They're in, you know, they're in hospital, they're in good hands, and they're getting treatment. And often, uh, well, as I said, sometimes there's that miraculous kind of recovery from a person being so distressed, agitated, as I said, tormented, to not being agitated, not being tormented. They may not be saying, I feel great, but the family can see the difference so quickly within, let's say, a week or so, and then continue to improve when they've not necessarily improved for sometimes a long time, that's what ECT can can provide. And and look, as I said, that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough for us to know that ECT does make a big difference, both evidence-based wise, we know that's the case through all our years of research internationally, but just as a clinician, that's what the whole team can see, not only do us medicos and the ECT team see it and all their, the nursing team and the other clinicians involved in their care. But, of course, the best part is when um, the person themselves and the family say, oh, my God, you know, I feel so much better and I'm tolerating this thing called ECT, you know, and they had because don't forget it. I mean, it's scary enough at the best of times. But when you're depressed and you're faced with this idea of having what was already a scary kind of image, if you had one in your mind, it's doubly frightening, and then to see that being okay, and then to feel better, that's that's um, um, that is pretty special to see.
0: It must be an amazing feeling, and I know you're saying it's, it doesn't work for everyone, but for those miracle examples, it must be so amazing to see someone go in uh, in a state, and then after the twelve sessions, come out on the other side and be totally transformed.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, as I said, family. Uh, Can be amazed by it and relieved by it, of course. But even us seasoned clinicians, let's say, and certainly the anaesthetists, let's say, who aren't seeing mental health patients all the time, they're doing their other job, anaesthetizing patients for surgery. But, and so, as I said, it's three times a week. And so they may come back in a week's time, let's say, and do their anaesthetic for a person who's had two or three treatments in between let's say they started seeing the patient of course they see the patient when they're sometimes at their worst and they're anesthetizing them and they might come back in a week's time after they've had two or three more and they can see the difference because the patient's talking to them smiling with them conversing and reporting how uh, better they feel Um, and even the anaesthetists say wow that's 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 amazing and so we can see that and I know we've we've talked it up, but, you know, it, there are significant side effects and it's not necessarily the easiest treatment to go through. And so there is the, the downside for ECT as well, don't forget. And so, um, yeah, there's all these things to balance as well.
0: So I do want to get to the downside and the side effects, but, but just to close out on this point, um, what's the sense in the science and the published research on how effective it is? Do we have numbers that we can refer to? Yeah,
1: yeah. Look, ECT itself was you know, first sort of discovered back in the late 1930s. But as a, you know, as a real treatment, it's been probably available from the late 1940s, early 1950s. And so there's been a lot of pretty solid research tracking it through over the years. Now, fortunately, the treatments changed over the years. And so it can be hard to get more contemporary research in place. But certainly with what we call meta-analysis or, you know, multiple research endeavours all put together in a, in a single kind of, or well, how do we evaluate this treatment? There's good evidence to suggest that ECT is effective for the right type of depression um, between 50 and 90% of uh, the time. And probably for the, as I said, the right kind of depression closer to 80 to 90% of the time. And that's when the the depression is a very biological kind of condition. Whereas with medications, it might be closer to only 66% of the time. So two-thirds of the the time does a person respond to an antidepressant. So the response rate is much higher for ECT. I said the speed of response is much higher. And look, that's that's been substantiated through standard um, medical um, research evaluation just like any intervention in modern medicine would be. You know we couldn't deliver something like ECT, which does have side effects without it being substantiated. You know you just couldn't survive. You, you know how could you not be sued and et cetera et cetera, to deliver such a treatment if it weren't bona fide. Um, how it works? Well, um, again, when I get asked that question or I deliver my talks, I often say um, it works in the same way that um, an anesthetic works. And that is, and I, I show the next slide. And my next slide is we don't know. And so, no one knows exactly how general anaesthetics work. There's lots of theories as to how general anaesthetics work. But the um, the um, medications that we use, they they work in different ways, using different mechanisms. There's you know gas that you can inhale. There's injections that you can use. But they all work in ways that people don't really understand. There's lots of theories. And there's more and more clearer theories as to how they work on neurons and that sort of stuff. But it's not clear exactly how it works. Same goes with these, but we know anesthetics work because we use it all the time and you know it, it, it works. And similarly, we don't know exactly how ECT works. There's been lots of research, but we do know it works to help a person recover from depression, whereas a placebo or medications don't work as well. So there's a number of theories. Um, It goes from maybe it works in the same way that antidepressant medications work in that it increases certain neurochemicals, um, serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, and a whole lot of other brain um, hormones and chemicals that we're not necessarily so clear about. Um, There's studies that show that different brain chemicals uh, increase with ECT. There's theories about how um, it seems to work in terms of the seizure production, um, having a seizure and stopping a seizure. Um, And there's chemicals that need to go through the brain to do that. And so perhaps ECT induces the release of some of those chemicals. That's how ECT was perhaps thought to work in the first place, because we did see that people with epilepsy didn't seem to have so much depression. And so there was some thought, well, we, if we cause seizure in, in in patients, then um, then maybe that's what might help their depression as well, and so that's part of perhaps the the theory as to how ECT actually came about. Uh, there's also you know there's lots of studies looking at brain imagery, so we can see you know I'm sure people have seen you know um, MRI scans and CT scans or functional PET scans as we call them or MRI scans where we actually not only look at the Um, the architecture of the brain, but also what different parts of the brain are lighting up and and active. And so we can see that certain parts of the brain are inactive in depression. And then when we give them treatment, whether it be antidepressant medications or ECT, the same kind of brain response we see in particular parts of the brain um, normalize as well. And we see that happen with ECT as well. Yeah, wow. And there's a whole slew of other theories as to what hormones might be uh, involved, or other things that might uh, change with ECT? But I must admit, we don't know exactly how it works.
0: So, what are the downsides?
1: Well, um, it's not the easiest treatment to have. Um, you need an anaesthetic, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. But the main concern that people have, and this is quite understandable, is um, memory loss that might come with ECT. The evidence suggests that. Um, There is a small degree of um, brief retrograde amnesia, so that's um, memory loss for um, before the actual ECT, and so you can have patchy memory disturbance for, let's say, up to two or three months before you start ECT, during the course of ECT, can have patchy short-term memory loss and so you may not remember conversations that you've had people's names those sorts of things and then even after ect stops you can have some difficulty remembering things that you might have learned in that subsequent two or three months even after a course of ect so that whole block can be a bit of a blur but it's patchy it's not certainly not uh, a blur for everything, and that's why I said, you know, family and the person themselves are often, you know, pleasantly surprised after their treatment that their memories are not wiped and, you know, they can recollect everything. But yes, as you keep going with ECT, that there, there is going to be some impact on your memory. And so that's sort of autobiographical memory. The biggest concern, I guess, for people is longer-term autobiographical memory disruption. So not being able to remember, you know, um, longer held memories of things that have happened in the past or for that matter, new things in the future, um, learning new things. But there's no strong evidence, although it is hard to determine, that that's actually the case with ECT. Having said that, there are people who do complain of, and um, I think it's quite legitimate um, that they do have more significant, longer term autobiographical memory. There's very few people who might suggest that they have problems learning things in the future. And technically, there shouldn't be a reason why that happens. Um, But people do mention that, and I think that is perhaps valid, although it's not necessarily substantiated in all the studies that we've done. In fact, most of the studies actually indicate that a person's cognition actually improves with ECT. Not because of ECT itself, but because, don't forget, when you've got a major depressive disorder, uh, of course. and if you have a severe one, your memory, your thinking, your ability to concentrate, focus, yeah. retain information, make decisions, they're all very, very poor. And so even if you don't have ECT, people who have experienced major depressive uh, disorders will say, you know, my memory for that time was all a bit of a blur. When people do recover, they often suggest it's like waking up from, you know, a dream or something. And it's always a bit patchy. Um, And so I often suggest it is like having a nightmare. And if, you know, people want to relate, you know, when we've had a nightmare or a terrible dream, when you wake up straight away, it's sort of it's there and you remember it all. But when you go back to sleep and then you wake up the next morning and you try and piece it all together, you can't remember all the details so well. That's a bit like having been unwell, let alone having had ECT as well and so everything gets a bit disjointed and it's hard to recall all the events
0: but i mean that's a really interesting point to consider there if i've understood what you said you're saying someone who's in this terrible terrible dark place and really depressed often have issues forming memories and having you know a healthy cognition space anyway so if you trade that off against a treatment that might impact your memories well you're not really forming memories necessarily in a great way if you're in that sort of headspace anyways is that right
1: yeah, so that's why that's why it's been so hard to study because yeah. we know people who are severely unwell have memory disturbance. Um, and so of course we've studied people and we've done, you know, batteries of of neurocognitive testing when they've been unwell and before they've been unwell, even. And then we've given them medications or ECT and then tracked their cognition post-treatment and so that's why I'm saying lots of studies actually indicate that a person's cognition actually improves after they've had ECT not because of ECT but because they're now well just like people who's who've responded to medication their cognition improves as well so I'm not suggesting it's the treatment that improves a person's thinking but the relief from depression that improves their thinking but that's why it's very hard to um, evaluate that because um, people often then when they've recovered uh, might blame ECT, and don't get me wrong, I mean that is real. But lots of people also say, well, when I when I've recovered and I didn't have ECT previously, yeah, I've not, I've had memory disturbance and those sorts of things as well. And of course, it gets blurred and all of that. And so it can be difficult to um, to conclude as to where that memory disturbance has come from. But I certainly do suggest that you know a significant proportion, of course, is coming from the actual ECT itself. Having said that, and this is, I can I can say this from my my own professional involvement with ECT, I've not uh, I've not seen a patient, and I've certainly not had my own patients, not be able to return to their vocation of training because of ECT. I've seen a lot of people have to not work because of um, mental health illnesses and uh, not recovering from illness, but not because they've had ECT. So there is memory disturbance, but you don't forget things that you've learned, you know, you don't forget how to drive a car, how to ride a bike, you know, your loved ones, those sorts of things. Um, And similarly, you don't forget, you know, your vocation. There can be some difficulties returning to to, to work, um, but it's not as if you're learning things for the first time. Things come back very quickly right so So
0: in your experience do you ever have patients that initially have a memory disturbance or a memory loss but with the course of time they recover that memory or is it once it's gone it's basically you know that that's it
1: oh no no well that that
0: so we see that even during the course of ect so when you wake up from
1: ect let's say there is that period of confusion and if i ask the person what the day and the date is straight as soon as they wake up they might not have any idea but come back to them in half an hour or in an hour and ask them the same thing. And it comes back, you know? And so there is that kind of memory disturbance and yes, and that's why I'm saying it. it's it's patchy. There's some things you remember, you know, you might remember someone's name, but not someone else's name that you remembered from yesterday. And similarly, you're right. Some things come back and some things that you've otherwise forgotten uh, seem to come back. And uh that that's just the nature of what might happen. And again, it varies from person to person. Some people almost feel that um, that hasn't impacted on their memory or cogn- cognition at all. And some people um, have major concerns about how much it has impacted upon things. And so that's, as I said, part of that consenting process where I have to tell a person what the risks are and what the memory risks are, um, what the evidence is suggested, but also what I would regard as reasonable. And that's saying what people have also reported over the years, not just to me, but just generally speaking, as to the potential impact. And I do like a person to have, to make as informed a decision as possible. Of course. And they do know that I can have, you know, more significant memory impact than I would otherwise like. Um, but and that's the difficulty of making a decision. You can imagine how hard it is for someone to make that decision when they're actually very depressed and very unwell at the same time. Um, And that's where we don't need family members to sign the consent form, but we very much want family members to be a part of that conversation and to also um, help make the decision or at least be reassuring or to actually say, "Look, no, we don't want this treatment. And uh, we know um, our brother hasn't ever wanted this treatment and he's not quite sure now, but we know what he thinks. And after hearing what you've said, we don't really want to go down that path just yet. And so we can make a decision um, collectively, I guess, in some respects. So generally speaking, that's the way that we would like things to happen. But yes, as I said in the in the more acute emergency kind of situation, sometimes we do we do need to invoke um, legislation to actually provide hospitalization, let alone something like ECT, even potentially as an involuntary patient. And you can imagine that's pretty disturbing for, for people and for the community. Oh, yeah large
0: to consider. Yeah. Dr. Wong, we're out of time. Thank you so much for your expertise and your thoughts and sharing your experience.
1: No, my pleasure.
0: Okay. Well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Graeme Wong. You can find us at talklink.com.au and we look forward to catching you next time.